exactly two days ago was 2-22-22, which prompts the vital question. Who are the best Oregon football players to ever wear the number two in Eugene? We discussed that today. For those of you watching on YouTube, you can see I've got Ryan Winner of 503 Sports Chat with me. Plus, we get into some Oregon football discussion and some basketball talk as well. Here we go. You are Locked On Ducks, your daily podcast on the Oregon Ducks, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. It is that time once again for Locked On Ducks. I'm your host, Spencer McLaughlin, D1 play-by-play broadcaster, lifelong Oregon Duck fan. Thank you for making this your first listen every day. It's part of the Locked On Podcast Network your number one source to stay up to date with the Ducks every day. Remember to like and subscribe wherever you are listening to the show or watching right now. If you're doing so on YouTube, thank you for doing that. If you want to leave a nice comment, that always makes my day. Five-star reviews, we love to get those as well. Helps out with the show. Today's episode is brought to you by Run Your Pool with March Madness right around the corner. Run Your Pool is the best way to organize your bracket pool. Head to runyourpool.com slash locked on to get entered into a big cash prize competition ryan winner first time on the show sports chat 503 and if you're watching on youtube you can see he is all in on all things oregon ducks it's an impressive setup of memorabilia that that you've got there ryan but i'm all about it yeah man appreciate you so much spencer great to have you on for the first time certainly won't be the last and i i just thought this would be such a fun discussion because oregon football you know travels across so many different generations and there have been a bevy of talented players, particularly in the last 20 years or so, as the program has really taken taken off to a national level. So we're starting today with the most important of all topics, and that is, of course, who is the best player to ever wear the number two for the Oregon Ducks? Ryan has a guy. I've got a guy. We'll discuss some other great number twos as well, but I don't know who he's chosen, nor he my selection. So, Ryan, the floor is yours. The best player to ever come through Eugene playing football and wear the number two, who you got? Yeah, I thought it was a unique question. There's not that many twos out there. It's kind of a, uh, an odd number, uh, but uh, I, I think it's Tony Hartley. He's the guy who immediately came to mind for me, uh, late nineties receiver. And uh, <clears throat> you know, there's other guys out there we can talk about as the list goes on, but if you go offense or defense, but Tony Hartley is the first guy I thought of. Yeah, I had to, you know, do a little bit of digging because my frame of reference, I, I won't try to make you feel old here, but my frame of reference is, good, is not is not particularly large in the grand scheme of things. So m- my best number two, I have to give a shout out, by the way, to at Eric J. Hovland on Twitter, an Oregon fan who who shouted this out to me at the at Locked on Ducks Twitter, which you should all be following along. I've got Ontario Smith running back. For the Ducks in the early 2000s, he had 2,100 yards, almost 2,199 yards, 19 rushing touchdowns in two years in Eugene. And that was a name that I'd like roughly heard of, but I didn't remember in a huge way. But boy, with, with the great run of running backs that Oregon's had in the last several years, that's a name that when you just look at the stats, which are staggering, that was back when offense was not quite as explosive as it is today. Those are some really, really impressive numbers for uh, for the guy who I think is the best to ever do it wearing the number two. Yeah, Ontario's awesome, man. Um, <clears throat> he's also got that great 
uh, ESPN, the magazine cover in the new jerseys. You know, he was part of that era where Tinker had the new jerseys with the new color scheme with the mallard head helmet and all that sort of stuff. Uh, I immediately thought of also guys on the defensive side of the board, uh, defense side of the ball, TJ Ward, great player, NFL, Chris Oldham, another guy from the nineties, great player. I think he played 12 years in the NFL. Uh, Jeremiah Masoli wore it for one year uh, when I went to the uh, holiday bowl. That was awesome. I loved him in the number two. I think I've got a picture in here of him wearing it. So when I think of Masoli, I often think of the number two, not number eight. He switched over. Braylon Addison was a super great player, had that great catch on the sideline. But Jordan Kent is kind of the uh, the random one. He wore it in basketball and football. So, Yeah, and he, he was a really, really good athlete. He's a, a play-by-play guy and studio host now. But I think yeah. that a lot of fans might forget how good of an athlete he was. I, I'm glad you mentioned Braylon Addison because that was a name that I saw getting thrown around a little bit. And I think he was a really kind of underrated player because he existed at least at the university of Oregon at a time when there were, there were just a bevy of weapons everywhere that you look, there were a lot of guys and he, I don't want to say he got lost in the shuffle because he made a lot of really big plays, but he was number two and he wore the number 11, but I'm glad you brought up that Masoli thing because he has, you know, the, the most iconic play for Jeremiah Masoli is certainly the fourth and three against Oregon State. But the precursor to that that got more national attention was in that Holiday Bowl against Oklahoma State when he did when he did the same thing to a safety and he was rocking the number two when he did it. So I guess he kind of has two different careers, the number two career and the number eight career. And, you know, maybe mm-hmm. number eight has got more, you know, wins under his belt as the quarterback. But you know, we, we saw glimpses when he was rocking that number two and he, you know, worked out, it worked out pretty well for him. Yeah. That was a, a kind of a special time for me personally. That was like my son's first duck game. My son oh, uh, is an absolute diehard. He's been to over a hundred games at Otson. The guy has been seeing the ducks all over the place, basketball, everything else. And that was kind of, that was, that was his first game. He's a baby. We've got the little headset on him or whatever. <laughs> and it's Bilotti's last game. It's kind of the turnover. Uh, and, uh, and we stayed at the, at the hotel with the players in San Diego at that game. And they used to do it where, you know, they still probably do where the game's on one night and the, or the game's on. And then later on, they play the replay. And so we're all in the bar and, uh, you know, that bowl was a great bowl back in the day. That was the second place bowl. Yep. And it was a really great location, you know, San Diego. And it was before new Year's, So it was like new year's Eve. And so it was like, uh, we were at the bar and you watch that play. He, you know, Chuck, that dude jumped over the guy. There's a couple of plays in that. The Garrett Blunt one where he jumps over and runs in. There's some great plays to be made in that play. But anyway, and I just lo- I just looked over at the guy next to me just to high five because it's all ducks in the bar. But Jeremiah was there with his whole family and everything. And, uh, and I'm just watching the replay and I looked over and it's Jeremiah. And I was like, hey, great play, man. <laughs> so awesome. that, that was kind of a time for me personally that was just kind of memorable because my son was there as a, as a baby. It's kind of his introduction to the to the game. And then also that end of the era with Bilotti, you know, the Bilotti era really kind of defined, you know, my generation, I'm 44. You talk about <laughs> dating yourself. So, you know, I was a junior in high school when they won uh, in 94 at the end of Rich Brooks career. And the start of Bilotti's career is basically my senior year with Cotton Bowl in high school and all the way through college. So uh, and B- Bilotti really represented an era for me personally. So it's kind of cool to see that game. And that game was also against a really good team, Oklahoma State. 
uh, Des Bryant and whatnot. That was a that was a really meaningful uh, game at that point in time. So. Yeah, I I miss the days when the Holiday Bowl was the number two. I I like it more than than the Alamo Bowl. Oh, you know, yeah. I, I just feel oh, like yeah. it's tougher to because you always have a Pac-12 team in it. It's tough to get great environments out there. But when you're on the West Coast and you have a Pac-12 team, you're going to be able to get fans to travel. That who doesn't want to go to San Diego for a weekend and and go go to a bowl game against exactly. a good team? We'll keep going here with uh, Ryan Winter, but. March Madness is only a few weeks away. That means you need to start thinking now about where you're going to be running your brackets this year. Are you going for the usual or are you looking for the best? We've done our homework. We're running brackets with runyourpool.com. Along with standard brackets, Run Your Pool offers game types like Survivor or Pick X, both really fun in their own way. They have options to edit scoring and they offer more intel to make your picks. All stuff you won't even find at ESPN or CBS. We believe Run Your Pool because, like I said, we're running our brackets there ourselves. There's no truer test than that. If you want to play against us for a shot at a cash prize, join us at runyourpool.com slash locked on. And while you're there, create your own pool for your friends and family. Enter Pure Badness at checkout for $10 off your custom pool. That's runyourpool.com slash locked on for your chance to win a cash prize. We look forward to seeing and beating you there. March Madness is right around the corner. If you want to win your office pool, you need to stay caught up with all the college basketball action with the Locked On College Basketball Podcast. Every Monday, Andy Patton and Isaac Shade recap the biggest stories in college basketball, keep you up to date on the NCAA tournament bubble, and get you ready for the upcoming week of games. From the Big East to the Mountain West and everywhere in between, Andy and Isaac have college hoops covered on the Locked On College Basketball Podcast. Available on YouTube and wherever you get podcasts. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network. Your team every day. So, uh, final few shout-outs to uh, the best number twos in Oregon history, and then we'll get to uh, the modern day. You know, Mikhail Wright, I think, earns at least some recognition, you know, because he was a a first-team All-Pac-12 corner. Took a little bit of a step back this past year, I thought, but he was really good. TJ Ward came to mind. Uh, we got Masoli and Ontario Smith, Brian Bennett, by the way, war number two, integral part of that Rose bowl winning season with Darren Thomas, because he had to play when DT got hurt against a ranked Arizona state team at Autzen on game day against Brock Osweiler and company. That was a really big moment. And he made a play, uh, that led to an Oregon touchdown in the Rose bowl as well. So some pretty good guys, but I I like that you went back to the, to the late nineties and didn't just don't fall into recency bias. The TJ award that that dude was a hit stick machine. And in today's college football game, he would be ejected every other time he, he went on the field. Well, and, you know, Devin Williams this year, you know, put up great numbers and had a great year. And had he been here for all four years, you know, he would have been doing some great things. He was a fantastic receiver. So you know, yeah. the, the guy, and I think it's a, it's a number now more guys are going to wear. It, it, I don't think it was even issued until maybe the nineties. So yeah. I, think, I think, I think three was the, the, the lowest number you could get most of the time. Well, yeah, there's there's one Oregon player that Duck fans know who wore number three. I think he was a quarterback like in the early thousands. His name's struggling to come to mind, but I'm sure it'll come to me later in the show. <laughs> anyway, uh, speaking of quarterback play, I talked about this on yesterday's podcast. Ty Thompson is the highest rated quarterback recruit to ever come into Eugene. And that understandably has Duck fans very excited and thinking about, you know, the, the Masolis and Darren Thomas of the world, but also more along the lines of the Mariotas and Herberts who are, you know, elite quarterback prospects taken in the top five. Uh, I guess Herbert was sixth in the NFL draft or just putting up, 
you know, the, these gaudy numbers. Mario wins the Heisman. Herbert's just an all-around stud. And I would like for Bo Nix potentially or Ty Thompson to become that sort of player. But I, I think Georgia and other teams have showed us in recent years, you don't necessarily have to have that level of quarterback play to win uh, you know, at the level that Oregon wants to be at, right? At a national championship caliber level. So what do you think about, you know, the, the prospects of Ty Thompson becoming that sort of player one day and potentially sitting behind Bo Nix again, or just kind of your thoughts on what the Ducks need from their quarterback position going forward? Yeah, I mean, I think it's the juiciest conversation of the offseason. I think uh, everybody likes the quarterback. You talk about Brian Bennett, I and mean, he was a huge crowd favorite uh and at, at holding the clipboard for a lot of the time but yeah i think it's gonna be a huge deal i think that bo nix is also a really highly re- recruited player and i i tend to also think the recruiting is i don't know a little double-edged sword i mean there's there it's nice to have the recruits it's nice to have the number it's nice to be wanted uh by that quality of player <clears throat> but they also have a lot to live up to you know they've got a lot on the plate and uh you know guys like mariota came in without that many offers guys like Justin Herbert because of an injury in high school, didn't have as many offers. They improved while they were in school and they also stayed. So I don't know. I, <clears throat> I think a lot of these guys are going to hit the portal. The think the, the, the future is you get to a school, you give it a year or two. If it doesn't open up, you get to another school. I think that's the new game plan across the board. Wouldn't be surprised at all. If Jay Butterfield or Ty Thompson left <clears throat> after spring ball. Or, you know, in the fall. Yeah, and we've already seen Robbie Ashford depart from the quarterback room, and at least one of them leaving was predictable. But I'm with you. I tend to believe that another one is going to leave, you know, whoever is number three on the depth chart. And Butterfield gets lost in the the shuffle here pretty easily because he's not the five-star and he's not the transfer Bo Nix. But he's a pretty highly rated four-star recruit who has shown – you know, at least when you when you watch his tape, some really interesting potential and he could certainly play at other schools and he won't want to just be on the sidelines the whole time. And with with guys getting the free tra- the free transfer now without having to sit out for a year, I think it's very reasonable to say that whoever the number two quarterback is will be the number two and then the number three guy likely to leave. But if Oregon wants to get where where we want them all to go, right? which is winning a national championship. Do you think it's a requirement that you have, you know, an elite Heisman caliber quarterback? Is that something Oregon has to have, or are they capable of building a roster around uh, an average or decent quarterback, like a Nick Marshall for Auburn or uh, a Stetson Bennett for Georgia? Well, I think you have to have everything in place. You have to have the defense, you have to have the running game. You have to have everything in place. And, I think they were trying to do that this year with Anthony Brown. I mean, they had a game manager for the most part. They thought they could be in it. Had you won that Stanford game, you would have been in the conversation late. You know, obviously you saw what happened at the end of the year. They kind of fell apart with Utah, but, you know, he wasn't that big of a a, a stretch early in the year to say that they could do exactly what you just said with a somewhat average quarterback. And uh, then you have take other guys who, you know, look at Josh Allen at Wyoming, you know, uh, phenomenal they were saying this guy's going to be a great nfl player well that doesn't mean he's going to win anything early at wyoming i mean he didn't really have that great of a team there and oregon went in there and trounced them and you know not that they had a a chance as a smaller school but that just goes to show these quarterbacks can come from anywhere and you know just because you have a big name program 
That doesn't necessarily mean you're going to attract big name quarterbacks. Quarterbacks are going to go wherever they can, wherever they can play. I think that's why I said that thing about the transport. No insult to these guys specifically, but I think that's just the modern movement. I just think for quarterbacks, they have a unique opportunity because only one guy plays. Everybody else holding the clipboard for the most part. And so you got to find yourself an opportunity for you to be the guy out there. And you're right. I don't think you need an elite, elite guy to win, but I think it's really important to have a guy that's back there that can do some things for you. And we saw some limitations this year. And if you would have had a better quarterback with this team, with the weapons you would have had at wide receiver, with everything else at the beginning of the year, you know, maybe you see a different uh, sort of situation, but then you have a coaching staff that maybe doesn't want that. So it's like, you have to have literally every single thing in place. Go back to what we talked about, Jay Butterfield. I do think Butterfield could be a good fit in this offense. These guys talk about a pro style, move the ball. What I hear there is quarterbacks pretty stagnant. Quarterbacks in the middle of the pocket throwing out quick. Doesn't mean the quarterback's taking a long time to process things through the field. Doesn't mean that the quarterback's taking the ball and being the main runner and having over 100 rushes as a quarterback. I don't think that's happening. So I think this this offense might even suit Jay Butterfield. They have an opportunity this spring without Bo Nix with the injury to put a lot of film on tape. I wouldn't be surprised if Jay Butterfield really surprises people with his arm, his accuracy, and his ability to throw in the pocket. He's a great pocket passer, and I think that's what this offense is going to create. I'm interested to see what the offense looks like. It's one of the great enigmas around Oregon football right now because Dillingham, I don't think he's ever been a, a play caller anywhere. He's been in OC and but everywhere he's been, the head coach has had his hands all over the offense. You know, Gus Malzahn at Auburn and then Norvell down at, at Florida State. You know, he, he's in on the game plan, the formation and all that sort of stuff. But it's different when you have a defensive head coach and Dillingham is, you know, basically one B in terms of most important coaches for the Ducks because it, it is not a, a CEO head coach. It's a defensive minded head coach who's going to give a lot of attention to that side of the ball. Speaking of the transfer portal, there's a guy who Oregon should be interested in, and it looks like they are. I'll tell you who that is. Football season might be over, but basketball is in full steam for pro and college hoops from all the latest odds, totals, player performance props to where the next fired coach is going to land. I mean, you can literally bet on anything nowadays. BetOnline.net is the number one spot for all your sports betting needs. It remains the best spot for all your sports scores, podcasts, and news this season. It's not just basketball. BetOnline.net, your source for hockey, boxing, UFC, right to Olympic coverage and information. Head to the website today or use your mobile device to learn more about the trends and action. BetOnline, where the game starts. So Mitchell Agude is the name that's in the transfer portal. He's defensive end from UCLA, was probably the Bruins' best pass rusher from this past season. He had six and a half tackles for loss, two and a half sacks. He also forced four fumbles in, 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 this, in this past season, which is a pretty astonishing number for just one guy. I think defensive end is one of several holes the Ducks have got to be able to plug in your mind, is this a guy and Oregon is in the final four along with Tennessee, Miami, and Washington? Is this a name you feel the Ducks should be making a high priority? I mean, yeah, I think I think with the new coaching staff, they're always looking at the transfer portal, looking at guys who've already been in a program, already been coached, already been through a weight program, already been in a weight room. They're not taking these guys off the uh, high school weight programs. They're taking them off a college program. And I, I agree, defensive line is going to be an interesting one, especially at the end. Uh, I do think there's guys who are ready to play, young guys who are ready to play, guys who showed us last year that they can step up. And I think that they're going to really bring something scheme-wise 
uh, to get a lot of guys opportunities. Um, I think that when you think about this coaching staff, it feels like to me, 70% of it's on the defensive side. So it feels like this is a coaching staff that's very, very focused defensively. And I think they're going to do some great things with the end position. I wouldn't be surprised if Braden Swinson has a great year this year off the edge. Uh, Adrian Jackson, other guys could have really, really good years just because of scheme. We saw this when Avalos came in, the dramatic difference that we saw getting pressure on the quarterback. Uh, I think it could be the same thing with Lanning. I think it definitely helps having Kayvon Thibodeau, but I agree. I, I liked Andy Avalos as a scheme guy in terms of his abilities as defensive coordinator. And from what I've watched with the Georgia defense, yeah, they're big, they're fast. They've got some really big time recruits, a lot of five stars, but I think they're schemed tremendously well. If you watch the national championship game, they had free rushers at Bryce young on several occasions and they didn't have to bring seven or, or six or eight guys in order, in order to do that. And that's because landing knows how to move guys around blitz this guy, not that guy. And, you know, one, one thing I'm really excited to see with this new coaching staff is how they can elevate players because we know that there's talent on this defense, but a guy like Dante Manning has not lived up to the five-star billing at this point in his career. Does he just need a different coaching staff who, you know, tells him to do this or plays him that way, gets him in positions to succeed to maybe reach his full potential? What does he do with Jeffrey Boss? I think Dan Lanning is going to have a world of fun with, with Jeffrey Boss at strong safety. It'll look a lot like uh, seeing the safety that Georgia had this past year, who's going on to the NFL, talented linebackers. I just see defensive end as the biggest glaring hole right now in terms of just a raw talent and experience point of view. And Thibodeau was so critical for that defensive line this past season. Agude is is a big physical guy who is a disruptor, and I, I think he could add a lot to, to the Ducks' defense. But uh, r- real quick before we go over to uh, some basketball discussion, what do you see as, as the biggest holes on, on the defense? Because I think it's defensive end specifically. I think on the interior, we're set. You know, Popo Amavai, Brandon Dorless, Sam Taimani, those are three of the five highest-rated interior defensive linemen in the Pac-12 from a season ago. You won't get much better than that. Most likely, they added another big body from Nebraska and Jordan Riley. But what do you see as the biggest area to address for for this staff that, as you pointed out, seems to be heavily focused at the defensive end of the ball? Yeah, I would agree. I'm gonna. It's gonna be interesting to see how the young guys step up. Uh, There's a lot of spots to fill in the backfield, Uh, and uh, your safeties, I think, are going to be really good next year. Uh, But I think the corners, you're gonna have you're gonna have some guys that are gonna have to prove it. And but yeah, you're right. The defensive, I think the linebacker core is solid. I think the the uh, the the uh, the upfront line, like you said, it's pretty solid. You just got some gaps to fill. I think they can. I think they're. I think like Cristobal said on the way out. Hey, you know, hey, if you want to hate on Cristobal for leaving, go ahead. But he said, hey, the cupboard is full here. I left three good classes. They're all young. They're all hungry. They're all ready to play. Have some fun with these guys. Yeah, I, I agree. When you look up and down the roster, I mean, there have been, you know, a handful of transfers when when that administration left, and that's to be expected. But a lot of them have stayed, and a lot of them are very talented. I mean, Noah Sewell and Justin Flows are five-star NFL-caliber players who are sticking around. The, with what we've seen from Bossa and his young career, he looks like an NFL guy, and I I, I am all aboard the Jeffrey Bossa hype train. If you, if you if you can't tell, those plays in the Alamo Bowl that he made, man, they, they were they were showing some level of explosion, anticipation, just instinct 
you know, he just seems like he, he's a football guy and he's got all the all the physical tools to to go along with it. I totally agree. I, I mean, just I was so impressed with him being so flexible to come from one position to another, dominate when he needed to. Uh, you're right. His 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 intellect is off the charts. Uh, you know, I think that's the modern NFL player. I think the modern NFL player doesn't have to be as big, doesn't have to be uh, uh, maybe as, as str- I think strong. They're still pretty freaking strong, but they don't just don't have to be so cumbersome. I think the guys are lighter. They're a little bit leaner. And I'd really love those big safeties that come down and play linebacker or put pressure on it. I think Bennett Williams did a great job in that similar type of role before he got injured. And I just love that style of play as, as a defensive guy myself who likes to watch defense. I love to put pressure on with those guys because who's going to guard them. I mean, seriously, an offensive lineman is going to take that with a 10 yard head of steam running full speed with those linebackers that they already have. Uh, I, I think that that's where you could really attack with this uh, defense. And I think they will. I, I also was really impressed at just how Georgia flipped the script on Alabama the second time and, and really put, exotic formations together and really put a lot of pressure on their play calling just just at the line you could tell how flustered they were with trying to get their plays called and trying to get their uh, offensive line set so i think i think landing is going to have a field day with this defense yeah i think i think there's a lot of talent for him to work with and uh i i can't wait for spring football to see the offense as well you know i think we uh, we showed our, our different errors once again you're a defensive guy like i really started to grow to love Oregon football and become a big fan in, in the Chip Kelly era. So I'm always thinking on, on that side. And so th- th- this will be a, th- this will be a first. This is the first defensive head coach Oregon's had since Rich Brooks, who left in, what was it? Ni- 1994, right? Yeah. Ni- after the 94, 95, yeah, 1994. So it's, it, it's a new, a new style and I'm, I'm interested to see how it plays out. Let's close today with some basketball talk and, Oregon men's basketball still has somehow they've got a chance, you know, it's like that Jim Carrey mean. So you're saying there's a chance, you know, for, for an at large, but they're certainly moving into a, a territory like 2019 where they're going to have to just win the PAC 12 tournament to, to get into the big dance. What have you seen from the ducks over, over the last few games and how do you feel about, their, their chances to be able to to build a tournament resume in, in just the last few weeks with four games left. Yeah, it's been a rough one. I mean, uh, I go to as many games as I can uh, to both the men's and women's. I was just at the Stanford game for the women's. I'm going to go tomorrow to see the UCLA game for the men's. Uh, you don't know what you're going to get with this team. I think, uh, I think there's a couple of things. I think big picture, there's not a real takeover guy. You don't have a Chris Duarte. You don't have a Peyton Pritchard. You don't have a guy that you just can lean on every single game. No, you're going to get a bucket from him. Dylan Brooks. They, Dylan Brooks. You can just keep going back, right? I mean, they, they they just don't really have that this year. You thought it was going to be Will Richardson. He is the best scorer on the team, but he can go minutes, quarter, feels like half uh, of the game without scoring. Uh, still gets other guys involved. I thought at the beginning of the year, uh, Damian Harmon was going to be the guy. Um, and uh, it, I, he, he's been hot and cold. Uh, Eric Williams, I thought was going to be a, a guy that's going to really help the team offensively. It feels like he's kind of lost his shot halfway through the year. Uh, I thought Quincy Gurria at some point was going to be the best player on the team. So you can just go down the lineup and just go around. There's a really talented lineup here. I think they, when they rebound the ball, I think they can be competitive with any team in the nation. I was at the Baylor game. Uh, they were hanging right with Baylor. They lost it at the end. They were getting lobbed on and stuff at the end. Their defense is not really that tight. The communication's not great on the defensive side. 
And offensively, sometimes they get a little stagnant. You know, Dane is known for uh, a really creative offense that really doesn't use some traditional things like screen and roll top of the key. And uh, they get the action from a lot of different places, but they do a lot of the dribble handoff. You know, any AAU gym in the country, you'll hear Oregon, Oregon. They'll run Oregon. It's all just the dribble handoff top of the key, trying to get a one-on-one to go to the lane and then have a little dish into the corner. But there's really nothing that when they need a bucket, there's really nothing that they can depend on. And that's really the hardest thing. And when they have uh, dried up with the uh, shooting the ball, uh, they've had really, really uh, tough stretches. I mean, that Cal game was unreal. They jumped oh. out to, I think, is maybe like a 12-6 lead or something. Then Cal went on like a 24-0 run. And all of a sudden, we're like, what the hell is happening here? We're down by 20. It's the first half. We were up by, you know, six to start the game. So uh, weird things for this team. It's just, it feels like they never really quite clicked. At the same time, I'm expecting them to at least win one of these games against these L.A. schools this weekend and possibly be in the running for both of them. And then you still have these two schools against Washington that are both really good this year. I think Washington finally found themselves. They're playing a lot better down the stretch. And Washington State's going to be really tough because it feels like they're right about the same level Oregon is, and they're both scrapping for the same thing. So I think it's going to be a great tournament. I love the tournament. I've gone numerous times down to Vegas to watch it. This is going to be a great year to do it. I don't think the Ducks are going to win it, but I I agree with you. If they don't win the rest of their games down the stretch, uh, they're going to have to win it to get in. Uh, this is a team I think could go to the elite eight. This is a team I think could lose in the first round of the NIT. And I think that's just how wide the disparity is between the, uh, the good version and the bad version. Yeah. You brought up an interesting point in there about Dana Altman's offense, you know, running the, the weave that's been a staple and it does set up a lot of one V one situations in w- with the lineup that they have this year, because guys are so hot and cold and you don't have that one reliable guy. I think that's part of the reason the offense has faltered at times this year, because we were just listing, it was Dylan Brooks. Then it was Peyton Pritchard. You know, you had, uh, you had Joe young in there at at one point in time as well. And you just don't have that sort of scoring. Will Richardson is a really good college basketball player. Who's had a great career with Oregon. But if you're talking about the difference between an okay team and a good team or a good team and a great team, Richardson's probably more suited as, a number two or maybe even a number three, but probably, probably a number two than, than, a, than a true number one, because like you said, he can, he can just go cold. But if they go three and one down the stretch and you beat one LA school, I think that makes it close. If you go three and one down the stretch, you beat both LA schools. They can give themselves a really good chance. If they could pick up two wins in, in the PAC 12 conference tournament to be in a position to get an at-large bid otherwise we'll just be we'll we'll just be sweat. I mean we're going to be sweating it game by game no matter what but man those ASU and Cal losses just just sting right about now because that's the difference between them being comfortably in the field and being on the outside looking in oh yeah I mean I mean this is this is what this is what we're dealing with we, we we're used to seeing this team get better at the end of the year this team has not and uh the the best basketball they played was down in LA and they played great basketball in the desert against Arizona. They just came up short. I think uh, that game was an absolute heartbreaker. Uh, everybody will kind of talk about that last play. Uh, obviously, not getting a three-up was ridiculous. But, you know, again, this is a team that just does not have the one player that you can look to. And uh, the player that they probably should have had the ball in their hands was Quincy Guerrilla that game. He was the hot hand from deep. And he was just wide open, like, hello, you're going to pass me the ball now, right? I can shoot. 
tall guy with range, can shoot deep. He had the hot hand. I don't know why he wouldn't have the ball in his hands uh, because you just have everybody there who can kind of do something similar. I don't think that necessarily anybody on this team is great. And they get a lot of guys that are good. And, and I think this team is a unique team because you got such height. Uh, you've got these two guys in the middle that can easily play uh, with anybody in the country and Nafale and Frank. And I think uh, the guys off the bench are, are really learning a lot from this year, the freshmen, uh, because you're going to have some seven footers in this lineup for a while, not to mention the guys that they're recruiting coming in. You're going to have even more bigs in the lineup. So uh, I think Dane is going to have to dump it down at some point. I think Nafali played a great game against uh, Arizona. I think he's going to have to get some points in the paint because that's going to have to be something you exploit going down the stretch. They're going to have some trouble this weekend though, because again, I think UCLA is looking for revenge. They did not like that loss down at Pauly. And USC is always a problem. I mean, USC, that 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 team is scary every, any single year. I, mean, I know Annie Enfield's system is great, but, dude, Mobley brothers through there have put in some serious talent, and those guys are really hard to stop. Oregon did a great job of stopping him the last time, but any of those other guys can get hot. I mean, they're two guards, six, seven. So they, they're, they're a long team, and uh, I think Oregon's up against it. Well, hopefully they can play with that urgency they showed last weekend in the desert at Arizona. Not the Arizona State urgency because there was none in that game whatsoever. Right but flag. There, there was there was down in Tucson. First time we've had you on the pod, Ryan Winner of Sports Chat Five Hundred Three. Check him out on YouTube, talking all things ducks. So much fun to have you in the show, man. And we will most definitely do it again. Most definitely, man. Talk to you soon, Spencer. Appreciate you. Indeed. Thank you, everyone, for watching and or listening. Have a wonderful rest of your day, and go Ducks.